this evening, my topic, I've been told, is a, a surprising topic uh, for uh, a CSP lecture and for anyone whose research focuses on Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah. And I've come to this interest in this subject, actually, quite honestly. I grew up in Mesa, Arizona, and given that there were only about three Jewish kids in my school, um, all of my friends and playmates there were Mormon. Um, and there, there was often a lot of uh, just sort of lack of understanding of our different um, religious ways of life, but that was fine. This was part of what made um, growing up in, in, in Mesa, Arizona interesting. I remember when we first moved there from Canada, uh, someone knocked on the door and said that they were doing a canned food drive. And I thought, oh, great. Sadaka. So I went and got some canned food. I think I was six years old, and and I, I brought it. I brought it to the door, and um, the 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 girl at the door looked at me and she said, "Are you a member of our stake?" And I, I said, "What what's a stake?" And she said, "Well, it's a it's like a church. Never mind." And I said, "Oh, it's for a church. So is this a Sadaka project?" And she said, "What's a Sadaka project?" And I I said. Never mind. Um, and this, this was the beginning of a long and, and actually very nice relationship that, that we had with the Mormon community in um, Mesa, Arizona. But this talk, this question about the role of Kabbalah in the development of uh, early Mormon theology and, and the thought of Joseph Smith, um, I just want to emphasize this is not intended to debunk Mormonism. Uh, it intends neither to, neither to confirm nor deny, but rather to assess the question of a relationship that actually has interesting implications for how we understand the role of Kabbalah in Western discourse and Western religious identities more broadly. Um, Joseph Smith himself describes his own prophetic method as incorporating forms of truth that he sees in other religious traditions uh, and that he finds anywhere else. In fact, in a sermon published in 1843, uh, he states that he's commanded by God to seek truth wherever it may be found um, in any tradition in order, as he puts it, quote, to get all the good in the world and come out a pure Mormon. So this was part of his method. And as he would seek truth in other places, as he describes it then through an inner experience uh, of, of revelatory inspiration, he would be able to know which aspects of it are true or which version of it would then be able to contribute uh, to his conception of truth. And this is an argument that Ann Taves at UCSB and her brilliant student Stephen Fleming and others have offered. Um, and I, I think it's a really interesting way of observing how Joseph Smith incorporated a whole variety uh, of, of doctrines and ideas in a certain form into his ongoing system of revelation. And he had a notion that revelation was ongoing um, and, and continued uh, throughout his life. Um, Mormonism is also an incredibly important phenomenon in the American religious landscape. Um, according to Leo Tolstoy, Mormonism is what he referred to as, quote, the quintessential American religion. And in many ways, this is a kind of indigenous form of the white European immigrants to the United States American religion. This is something that really develops in the United States and then spreads from the United States throughout the world and has become a global phenomenon and proportionate to itself 
Mormonism is in fact the fastest growing religion in the world. Um, not in terms of absolute numbers, but in terms of its own proportions. So this is a really important phenomenon. And what I want to explore is the surprising role of Jews, and I would argue also Kabbalah in the development of Mormonism and Mormon ideas and Mormon religious discourses. This is an ongoing piece of research. I haven't published about this. This isn't in my book, Kabbalistic Revolution. Um, and in fact, it's, it's in the modern period. So it's, it's kind of unusual for me when I'm typically interested in things that happen in the Middle Ages. But what drew me to this was the reemergence of medieval Kabbalistic literature, especially medieval Kabbalistic literature from Spain, which is where my research has been before, in a place where I wouldn't have typically expected to see it. And what I think that this reveals is that Kabbalah, ironically, is everywhere. We keep finding Kabbalah coming up in all kinds of unexpected places. And I think that has something important to tell us about the role of Jews and ideas about Jewish secret knowledge in Western culture much more broadly. So first, let's think about how this works within the context of Mormonism. Um, there's a lot of technicalities for tonight's talk, so I'll try to move through them as quick, clearly as possible uh, and get to the punchline as quickly as I can, and then we can uh, have questions and a conversation. So Joseph Smith, uh, born in, in Sharon, Vermont in 1805, and in 1816, uh, his family moves to Palmyra, New York, and this area was referred to as the Burned Over District. It was a place where there was a lot of religious fervor and religious diversity and many, many forms of Christianity, especially Protestant Christianity, take shape in this part of the country during this period. In 1820, when he's still a teenager, he claims an, a vision uh, that, uh, in which an angel offers him forgiveness and also notes the error of all other Christian sects, that there's a huge diversity of Christianities and that they are all to some degree in error. And then in 1823, he has a vision from the angel Moroni describing a gold-plated book hidden in the hill Camorra. And it is said to describe the people who used to inhabit North America. And it provides, quote, the fullness of the gospel. So this book is an unrevealed testament that has this transformative impact, potentially, on the very notion of Christianity itself. But it's said that the text isn't ready to be revealed yet. But in 1827, Smith claims that he was given permission to recover these plates, and he begins to translate them with what are a kind of seer stones. They're the Urim Vitumim, uh, the, the stones that are described in the Bible as being affixed to the ephod or the the breastplate of the, the high priest, um, and that they're, they're said to have a kind of revelatory, uh, a revelatory purpose. In Samuel, there's a place where it seems that they're used to answer yes or no questions, that the Urim and Tumim will light up in a certain way when prophetic questions are asked, um, indicating essentially positive or negative. So it's a kind of revelatory mechanism that's mentioned in the Bible. Um, the Book of Mormon, as recorded on these plates, according to Smith's testimony, was in a form of a reformed Egyptian, so it was in a kind of Egyptian language, and it was translated using the Urim and Tumim over the course of several years, along with the help of a man named Oliver Cowdery, who was his assistant. 
1829, Smith and Cowdery also together have a, a vision from John the Baptist in which they have the priesthood of Aaron conferred upon them. And then in 1830, the Book of Mormon then is published. Um, the basic story of the Book of Mormon is it describes events that happen in North America between approximately the years 600 and 400 BCE. Um, and it, it's important because it reads America into the sacred history of the Hebrew Bible. According to this text, the family of Lehi, who is a prophet in Jerusalem, they leave Jerusalem just before the destruction of the temple in 586 and are able to move to America. Um, it claims that then of his sons, Nephites and Lamanites descend from Lehi, they fight wars, and the Book of Mormon, which contains many books actually, like the Bible, which contains many books, um, describes some of these conflicts between the Nephites and the Lamanites. It also claims that there is a, an appearance of Jesus in the New World, and in this description of what happens in North America, there's also the claim that the Ten Lost Tribes are in fact the, the, the antecedents to their descendants, the Native Americans, who are living in North America as well. America is also then designated as the final site for the return of Christ. So America becomes really, really important sacred territory in the Book of Mormon and in subsequent Mormon revelations and ideas about the sacred history that is unfolding, they regard America as being really central in that, in that drama. Um, around 1830, the Mormon church that starts to develop around Smith and around the Book of Mormon moves to Cortland, Ohio. And according to the doctrine of continuing revelation, Smith continues to publish sermons, uh, publish revelatory statements, and uh, these continue to be collected over time. And they build a temple in Kirtland. But because of tensions with the surrounding community, uh, there's a lot of tension over a whole variety of issues between the Mormon church and other churches and other people in the region. Um, they end up having violent conflicts. The temple is burned in Kirtland. And so in 1836, the Mormons are forced out and end up establishing a, a, a group of people in, a play, in Illinois that is called Nauvoo. Nauvoo, Illinois, uh, coming from the Hebrew word, Nava, um, beautiful beauty, beautiful dwelling or repose. Um, and very quickly, and, and this is actually pretty remarkable, within about four years, it becomes a large and wealthy settlement, and then very quickly it has around 10,000 people in it, which at the time made it a city around the size of the city of Chicago. Um, in fact, it grows to around 15,000 by the year 1845. So this, this was a substantial settlement, and this is a place from which Mormonism is then later launched in, in, in all kinds of important ways. They also pursue a, a mission um, to attract converts in England around this time that turns out to be reasonably successful. And a second temple is constructed this time in Nauvoo. In 1843, Joseph Smith has two new revelations, um, some of the most important and, and most famous uh, of the, of the revelations, revelations of Joseph Smith, the doctrine of the baptism of the dead. Um, so this is idea that the, the souls of the departed still exist in the afterlife and that they can be called to baptism through baptisms performed in this world, uh, but the souls still then have the option to accept or decline this opportunity for baptism. And of course, uh, one of the most well-known 
doctrines in the Mormon church is, is that of polygyny or plural marriage. Um, it's not technically polygamy because it wasn't plural marriage in both directions. It was men taking on multiple wives, as we find in the Hebrew Bible as well. I always tell my students if they want to come across as really irritating and pedantic, they should correct people when they use the word polygamy and tell them that unless they are imagining plural marriage that also includes polyandry, which would be the taking of multiple husbands by a wife, formally they're referring to polygyny. Um, and that this, this will render them irritating to all of their friends. Uh, and I've been told by my students that that really works, that people really do find that irritating. But polygyny is important because this, the idea of taking on multiple spouses, this, uh, this applied only to men taking on multiple wives. Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, and others um, took on multiple wives. It wasn't an uncontroversial document, including, uh, this doctrine was, was controversial, including even to Joseph Smith's um, first wife. And the, the, over the, course of a couple of decades, it becomes an important Mormon idea, but one that is rethought at the end of the 19th century, and um, mainstream Mormons today uh, are monogamous. In 1844, Smith announced that he will run for president, and he gives perhaps one of the most important discourses or public sermons that describes some of the key elements of Mormon theology that are not spelled out in detail in the Book of Mormon, and this is the King Follett Discourse. Um, he also orders, at least by some claims, the destruction of an opposition newspaper, and this causes a lot of controversy that then leads to Smith's imprisonment. And on the June 27th of that year, in 1844, um, Smith and his brother Hiram are killed when a mob attacks the prison where they're imprisoned. Um, and after that, Brigham Young becomes the leader of the church, and eventually they end, moving, end up moving west. So in addition to the Book of Mormon, um, which Smith and Cowdery are responsible for. There's also a collection of many of the published statements of Joseph Smith, uh, as well as translations and revelations in a collection called Doctrines and Covenants and the Pearl of Great, uh, of Great Price. And these are all really, really important textual sources for thinking about how early Mormon theology was presented and how it was articulated. So now, what are some of the basic theological claims? Um, one of the most important principles in the uh, Mormon church broadly, in the early Mormon church in particular, was the notion of priesthood and ordinances, or particular forms of ritual practice that were necessary for salvation. Um, there was the notion of the Aaronic, or the priesthood of Aaron, but also of the priesthood of Melchizedek, who's the priest mentioned in Genesis 14, as well as in the New Testament and letter to Hebrews, and the uh, priesthood of Enoch. Enoch is particularly interesting because the book of Enoch in Ethiopian was only discovered and then published in the 1820s. There's also the idea of the divinity of the soul, and that the soul has this particular connection to and real union with the substance of God. There's the idea that there are three levels in the divine world and in the afterlife, the celestial, terrestrial, and telestial, going from, from top to bottom. We find the notion of anthropomorphism, that God is configured in the shape of a human being, and this ultimately culminates in a doctrine of apotheosis, or of the idea of humans becoming gods. Um, and this then becomes part of a notion of a plurality of deities in the divine realm. We also find a lot of emphasis on the sanctity of marriage and procreation as a sacred duty and one that's connected to the divine realm. 
There's the notion of ongoing revelation, which I mentioned, but there's also the idea that spirit and matter are bound together, and that in fact the world emanates from God and is connected to God, and thus there's particular value in rituals that are performed in this world, which then is part of what we call a theurgic principle, which we've mentioned in, in other talks, especially about Kabbalah, the principle that there's a correlation between the divine world above and the physical or human world below, and that actions performed in this world have an impact on the divine world. So now for those of you who have been to some of the docs addressing Kabbalah in this series, you might be hearing some uh, familiar themes. At least I hope you're hearing some familiar themes. Um, I don't, my thesis depends on it, so I hope you hear some familiar themes, uh, especially these notions of the theurgic principle, of the impact of human actions on the divine realm, the notion of the human body reflecting the divine, having a divine soul, and that marital practices of, of sexuality and procreation that these are not a concession to human weakness, but in fact contain a mystery or a secret that's necessary for the ongoing sustenance of the universe and for the fulfillment of the divine plan. These ideas are very important in Judaism and especially in Kabbalah. But now the question would be, how in the world do we end up with a connection of Jewish secrets, of a secret esoteric Jewish doctrine to this very public very American, very non-Jewish sounding doctrine. And there, I think, is the surprise that turns out not really to be a surprise. Mormonism articulates itself as a form of esotericism, as a form of ancient secret revelation that has been transmitted secretly and only recently come to light. The Zohar, for instance, uh, the book that's claimed to be written by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, written in a cave in the Galilee while escaping the oppression of the Romans. The way the Kabbalists understood the emergence of that book was that it was revealed by God through Shimon Bar Yochai. It had been hidden for a long time, but then the manuscript made its way from the Middle East to Spain, and a man named Moses de Leon copied extracts of it and circulated it to his friends and colleagues. It actually is a very similar narrative to what we hear with the development of the Book of Mormon. And just the notion that this special knowledge can't be derived logically with the intellect. It's a kind of revealed esoteric knowledge directly from God, conveyed through uh, a, a sort of secret channels of, translation, of transmission that then brings it to a moment when it can achieve public manifestation through some means, in this case, through Joseph Smith and the publication of the Book of Mormon. Um, we also find lots of ancient texts, real ancient texts, like the previously mentioned Book of Enoch, which actually do come to light in the early and mid-1800s. This is a time when people are thinking about the revelation of ancient secrets. But Jews, of course, have a special place in those sets of claims about ancient revelations. Jews are the ones who are present at Mount Sinai, and so there is always the potential that Jews convey ancient secret revelatory knowledge. And Smith had a particular interest in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, and in studying with Jews. In um, 1835, in Kirtland, Ohio, he hires Joshua Satius, who is a uh, Jewish 
Hebrew teacher, um, and it seems in some cases he presents himself as a Christian convert, and in other cases he presents himself as an observant Jew. So it's not really clear which one he was, but it's, it's important to note, so he was uh, from a, a, a Spanish family in New York, and he ended up traveling throughout North America teaching Hebrew. He, uh, he published a Hebrew primer that, that taught biblical Hebrew. He taught biblical Hebrew at Oberlin College. So I guess there's a long history of Jewish studies at Oberlin College. Um, in fact, from two years ago, Mark Michael Epstein, he went to Oberlin College. I, I don't think he studied with Satius, but this is part of the history of, of where this man was able to find opportunities to teach biblical Hebrew, and he claimed to have a method that in around 12 weeks would render one really able to read the Hebrew Bible in the original. As he is described in Joseph Smith's journals, Satius is regarded as an observant Jew. So clearly Satius understood enough about the circle of students around Joseph Smith that they were willing and open to hire someone who was a committed practicing Jew to be their instructor in Hebrew. And um, according to, it seems that there's a, 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 like a little diploma that was written for the students who successfully finished Satius's course, and Joseph Smith is among one of them who get his kind of his haskama, his imprimatur, as able to read Hebrew and translate Hebrew himself competently. Um, this testimony about Satius's instruction in Hebrew even indicates that he was teaching Hebrew classes in the, the temple in Kirtland right up before that temple was consecrated, was dedicated in 1835. Um, we also find in a publication of a sort of Mormon um, uh, periodical, a Mormon newspaper called Times and Seasons, Joseph Smith cites none other than the rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch and he cites him with regard to the question of the obligation to perform commandments. And it, he praises Hirsch for, and the Jews more broadly, for their dedication to the performance of rituals in this world as a result of their obligations uh, according to their covenant with God. And this becomes an important element of Mormon doctrine, that they are not saved purely through the grace of the sacrifice of Jesus, but rather it's necessary to perform the law of God and the will of God, and it's necessary to perform rituals in order to, um, to, to achieve true salvation. So it's not a salvation uh, by grace in Christ kind of doctrine. And in this respect, it's a substantial departure from most forms of Protestant Christianity in the United States at that time. We also find descriptions of the value of Jewish secrets for non-Jews, including in the Book of Mormon. So in the Book of Nephi, we find the following description. It says, and it came to pass that I, Nephi, beheld that they did prosper in the land. And I beheld a book, and it was carried forth among them. And the angel said unto me, knowest thou the meaning of the book? And I said unto him, I know not. And he said, Behold, it proceedeth out of the mouth of a Jew. And I, Nephi, beheld it. And he said unto me, The book which thou beholdest is a record of the Jews, which contains the covenants of the Lord, which he hath made unto the house of Israel. And it also contains many of the prophecies of the holy prophets. And it is a record like unto the engravings which are upon the plates of brass, save there are not so many of them. Nevertheless, they contain the covenants of the Lord, which he hath made unto the house of Israel, wherefore they are of great value for the Gentiles. 
And the angel of the Lord said unto me, Thou hast beheld that the book proceedeth forth from the mouth of a Jew. And when it proceedeth forth from the mouth of a Jew, it contained the plainness of the gospel of the Lord, of whom the twelve apostles bear record. And they bear record according to the truth which is in the Lamb of God. Wherefore, these things go forth from Jews in purity unto the Gentiles, according to the truth which is in God. The passage goes on, in fact, to con- to, to criticize the church which has then perverted the true revelation of God and elevates the value of the traditions conveyed by Jews in antiquity. And this is part of a broader idea that we see in Western culture and particularly emphasized in the early Mormon church. The notion that Jewish knowledge is regarded as a conduit to some legitimate ancient revelation from God. Jews are then particularly valuable in recovering a lost doctrine and restoring the true church on earth. So some scholars have noted that Joseph Smith's ideas bear strong similarities to Hermeticism, as well as uh, other forms of Western esoteric occult knowledge. They've noted that there are similarities between some facets of Mormonism and aspects of Freemasonry. And I certainly wouldn't argue that Jewish esotericism is the only source, but I would say that Kabbalah or Jewish esoteric claims, claims to secret revealed knowledge, are vastly underappreciated for understanding the development of Mormonism. And Jewish esoteric claims fit much better with Joseph Smith's own worldview, where it seems to make sense that he would look to Jewish texts and to Jewish esoteric texts in particular for figuring out his own understanding of what should be the true church on earth. Um, And in fact, there are many similarities that I just noted between some aspects of Mormon theology and cosmology and Kabbalah. But then it still begs the question, how did Joseph Smith gain access? How could he possibly have gained access to Kabbalah? And here, it turns out, is the secret that truly is not a secret. There are many books in the late 18th and early 19th centuries in German, in Latin, and in English, in Europe, especially England, among Protestants in particular, and in North America, that quite openly describe and discuss Kabbalah, Kabbalistic ideas, and Jewish esoteric texts. Um, So for instance, in The History of Philosophy by William Enfield, uh, which was published in the early 1800s, it states there, there's an entry on Kabbalah, and it says, quote, the Kabbalah, or mystical interpretation of the law, was brought over from Egypt to Palestine by Shimon ben Shetach. And it then goes on to talk about this connection with Egypt in particular is really interesting since the Book of Mormon is written in Reformed Egyptian, the idea that ancient Egypt is a source of important esoteric knowledge. Kabbalah is associated with that in some of these descriptions that we find in these uh, encyclopedias. In fact, this text, this particular passage goes on to say that, quote, Shimon Yochaides, this is Shimon Bar Yochai, uh, who wrote the book Zohar, is also an important source of esoteric knowledge. And it goes on, in fact, to say that after Sadja Gaon, this knowledge is transferred to Spain, which, in fact, Kabbalah did develop in Spain. And, in fact, Enfield discusses this a little further and says, among 
among the ancient Hebrews, there were many eminent men who made use of the clear light of divine truth with which they were favored by heaven as their guide in the conduct of life. Blessed with divine revelation, they have transmitted to posterity rays of sacred truth which have been spread throughout the world. And they have hence obtained an immortal name in an order of higher dignity than that of philosophers. Under the direction of genuine principles of religion, they pursue the plain path of simple virtue without being led astray by vain curiosities into fruitless speculations. Others who were distinguished by the name of prophets were employed in declaring to the people the will of God in managing the affairs of religion and in training up disciples for these sacred services. So these notions that Jews are the ones who bring forth this knowledge from antiquity and from God into the present world, and that Jews are an important source of knowledge that can be useful for Christians, this is part of what we find not only in ideas that are articulated in specifically Christian texts, but also even in encyclopedias, which of course weren't as secular in the 1800s as they are today, in which Jews are seen as this very, very important connection to ancient revelations by God, and that Christians need them and need their texts in order to have access to those particular kinds of revelations. So this text in the the, uh, encyclopedia that I mentioned says the following about Moses. It says, Moses, during the 40 days in which he was upon the mountain with God, besides the written code, received also an oral or traditionary law, since then called the Kabbalah, which he taught this this concealed doctrine to persons selected out of all of the tribes of Israel by whom they were transmitted to posterity. Some have even asserted that he wrote books now lost, from which Pythagoras and Plato drew a great part of their doctrine. The authority of Eusebius has often been quoted in support of this assertion. This kind of claim, which Jews also make about themselves, about their access to ancient knowledge that no one has, that gives them direct insight into the revelation of God, this was something that we find a lot of especially European and North American Protestants talking about in English. Um, This is also reiterated in the Encyclopedia Americana, as well as in a text by um, Hannah Adams called The History of the Jews from the Destruction of the Temple to Modern Times. And that reiterates a lot of the things that I just mentioned, but also has a very interesting appendix from an important uh, scholar named, important Jewish uh, authority named Menasha ben Israel. And Menasha ben Israel uh, is very famous for, among other things, arguing to Oliver Cromwell that Jews should be readmitted to England and the broader British Commonwealth. And part of how he articulates this argument is that the return of Christ, or the Messiah as the Jews see it, can't happen until Jews are scattered into the four directions of the world, because, of course, it says in the Bible that the Jews will be in, gathered into Israel from the four corners of the earth. And if, if Jews aren't in England, then obviously at least one of the corners is missing. And Cromwell apparently finds that argument fairly persuasive. But one of the things that Menashe ben Israel says as part of this development of messianic fervor in the 1600s is that the Native Americans in the New World are the lost tribes of Israel. So this idea, which is important in Mormonism, and in fact, it's, it's also articulated in a book by Ethan Smith in, before Mormonism, immediately before in 1823, is not that original. But Menashe ben Israel is a very important source 
for this idea, and he's writing in the mid-1600s. He also established the first printing press in Amsterdam, and many of his works were able to disseminate quite, quite broadly. Um, and of course, it was important that he was able to get Jews readmitted to England and the Commonwealth, because who knows, without that, maybe Jews wouldn't have been allowed in Canada, uh, which, as a Canadian, would have been a serious problem. So I, I've, I've vowed to get the word Canadian into as many of my talks as possible. And it's not easy, uh, but I did, I did manage it. Um, so how would Smith have been exposed then to these kinds of ideas? And it turns out that's also pretty easy. We find. Uh, a text by someone named John Allen called Modern Judaism. And for them, Modern Judaism means everything after the time of the Bible. So rabbinic literature and medieval literature is what they call Modern Judaism. And this book by John Allen, published in 1816 uh, in English in North America, is actually based on a book by a Protestant minister named John Peter Stalin. And this is called Rabbinical Literature, or the Traditions of the Jews Contained in the Talmud and Their Other Mystical Writings. It's a massive two-volume text composed mostly of citations, translations from Hebrew texts, from the Talmud and Midrash, and also from lots of medieval commentators and medieval texts that are mostly Kabbalistic. But that book, ironically, comes from, it is actually a translation into English from a book by Johann Andreas Eisenmenger called Entdecktes Judentums in German, which means Judaism Uncovered. It was published at around 1700, and this is in fact a deeply anti-Semitic book but an anti-Semitic book that's also pretty well done. Um, the, the Eisenmenger does a great job of translating Hebrew literature. He has tremendous erudition, and he cites hundreds of different Hebrew, rabbinic, and Kabbalistic books. And this becomes the source for a lot of these later texts, but somewhat cleansed of its anti-Semitism. The English versions of these books have very little of that anti-Semitism, but they cite all kinds of important texts. They cite the Zohar. They cite texts by Moses Nachmanides, Moses de Leon, Meir Ibn Gabai. These are all very important medieval Spanish Kabbalists. It also cites some anonymous Kabbalistic works, as well as things by Bachya ben Asher, who wrote a famous Kabbalistic commentary on the Torah, Shemtov ibn Shemtov, who wrote an important Kabbalistic book and criticism of Maimonides in 1391, and many others. And replete throughout this book are citations from Manasseh ben Israel. So now it seems, as I started to look into this, that in fact Kabbalah wasn't this removed secret thing that was hard to gain access to in North America in the late 1800s. These are books that would have been on the shelf of any normal library. They would have been in the shelf on, the, on the, the personal bookshelves of people's homes in the Northeast. And these books were easily accessible. Um, also, in 1842, Joseph Smith has a friendship with a man named Alexander Nybauer, who immigrates to the US from England, but who was a Jew originally from Eastern Europe, who had, it would seem, considerable knowledge of Judaism and Jewish texts. And Nybauer becomes Joseph Smith's language tutor, including continuing education in Hebrew. And Nybauer published a two-part essay in the publication Times and Seasons that I mentioned. And it's a description of the Jewish notion of the resurrection of the dead and their um, 
punishment or reward in the afterlife. And he notes when he publishes this that it will be of interest to any readers who are interested in Jewish literature. So it indicates that people clearly were keen to read about Jewish literature. They were interested in hearing about this from Jewish voices. Uh, and someone like Neibauer was valued by Joseph Smith right up to the end of his life. Um, so now, what are some of the particular claims about Kabbalah that we find in the Joseph Smith's descriptions of the nature of God, reward and punishment, things like this? We don't find the description of the 10 Sfirot, the 10 divine luminous emanations that I've mentioned in previous talks are really central to the Kabbalistic idea about the nature of God. But we find a lot of other things that are really important in Kabbalah and that are quite commonly described in the publications that I just mentioned. So in one very important comment in the King Follett discourse that was offered by Smith right before his death in 1844, he says the following about God. He says, God who sits in yonder heavens is a man like yourselves. That God, if you were to see him today, that holds the worlds, you would see him like a man in form, like yourselves. I want you to know the first principle of this law, how consoling to the mourner when they part with a friend, to know that though they lay down this body, it will rise and dwell with everlasting burnings to be an heir of God, joint heir with Jesus, enjoying the same rise and exaltation and glory until you arrive at the station of a God. If I should say anything but what was in the Bible, the cry of treason would be heard. I will then go to the Bible, Bereshit, in the beginning, analyze the word in and through the head. An old Jew added the, the letter bet. It read, the head one of the gods brought forth the gods. So he's translating Bereshit bara Elohim, that the bet was added by a Jew who was uncomfortable with the actual implications that the true text reads, Reshit bara Elohim beginning, or reshit, the head one, or the head god, bara Elohim, created the gods, or brought forth the gods. So it's this notion of a divine pantheon of gods, which is indicated by this sort of counterintuitive reading of the first three uh, words of uh, the beginning of Genesis. But this is very similar to a reading that we find in the Zohar on page 15a, but that we find scattered throughout Kabbalistic literature, in which it, they, they read it as Bereshit bara Elohim, and there it means with Reshit, God creates Elohim. And Elohim, which of course is a plural word, and, and uh, Joseph Smith was well aware of that as a student of Hebrew, but the Kabbalists use this to understand that Reshit, which is Chochmah, God uses Reshit, the second Sfirah, the ten Sfirot, to create Elohim, the third Sfirah. And so that it's a secret allusion to the emergence of the first, second, and third Sfirot in the Kabbalistic system. So obviously these are different readings in some ways of the early part of Genesis, but these are different readings that clearly evoke some sort of shared literary origin. And I would, I would suggest that the way that Smith articulates his notion of the plurality of deities by reading Genesis in this way in the King Follett sermon indicates a familiarity of some form or another with Kabbalistic literature. And why doesn't he just use the word Kabbalah and state that he's utilizing Kabbalistic literature? And here it seems that he says that he, he would be attacked if he utilized something other than the Hebrew Bible. So he's just basing himself on the Bible, but that he himself wouldn't have a problem with utilizing external texts other, 
other than the Bible. But here, in order to avoid that criticism, he sticks close to the Bible. We also find throughout the doctrines and covenants, covenants and the Book of Mormon, Smith refers to God as the endless, which of course in Hebrew is ensof, right? So we don't find other, other texts that use that term. But Smith uses the endless uh, uh, numerous times, this notion of, of God as the endless. Um, also important here is the theurgic principle, the notion that human actions can influence the divine realm. We find some mention of it in the Book of Mormon in Helaman 10.7, but it's also articulated by Smith in Doctrines and Covenants um, 132, which was written around 1843, where he says, quote, then shall they be gods because they have no end. Therefore shall they be from everlasting to everlasting. Because they continue, they shall be above all, because all things are subject unto them, then shall they be gods, because they have all power, and the angels are subject to them. And it goes on to say in verse 46 of that, it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that whatsoever you seal on earth shall be sealed in heaven, and whatsoever you bind on earth in my name and by my word, said the Lord, it shall be eternally bound in the heavens. And whatsoever sins you remit on earth shall be remitted eternally in the heavens. And whosoever sins whosoever sins you retain on earth shall be retained in heavens. And this is very evocative, again, of the Kabbalistic notion that when Jews commit transgressions, they cause a disruption in the divine realm. When they perform the, 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 the commandments, they are able to bind the spherot and to rectify things in the divine realm. This notion of theurgic power, which is so common in Kabbalistic discourse, becomes really central in Joseph Smith's vision of, of his own religious doctrine. And it seems that this was a very, very important part of what drew people to early Mormonism. This notion of the deified self through the performance of rituals in the world, especially in the temple, that they're able to impact the divine realm. But unlike we find in Kabbalah, where this is an idea that's applied to the communal people of Israel as they impact the divine realm, in the Mormon version of it, we see what might be called a particularly American vision of this idea, where each unique individual has their own unique path to attaining their own uniquely divine status. It's more of a doctrine of the rugged individual setting out to settle North America. It's an idea in which, rather than focusing on the communal structure of the Jewish people, as we find in Kabbalah, it relates to the path of the individual soul as it achieves a special, literally divine status to be God among gods in the divine realm. So this incorporation of the individual, I would suggest, is a more American and more individualized version of what is ultimately something drawn from and adapted from Kabbalah. Um, after the uh, death of the body, the final idea that's really important to Joseph Smith that seems to be connected to Kabbalah is the notion that there are three levels of the heavens and that there will be a resurrection of the body after death in order for there to be um, a uh, true punishment and reward uh, for those in the afterlife. And so this notion of triata metim, of the resurrection of the dead, is of course very important in Judaism and takes on a lot of meaning in Kabbalistic literature as well. But in Peter Stalin's Traditions of the Jews, this is actually the very last subject dealt with at the end of the second volume. It says that it's citing Tractate Rosh Hashanah, that people will be divided into three camps after they are resurrected. The, the wicked will be punished, 
Those who are middling with a combination of sins and transgressions will be cleansed of their sins and then admitted to the afterlife, and that those who are wholly righteous will then immediately be taken into the world of eternal life with God. So to sum up, what we find here is a combination and also a creative adaptation of Kabbalistic ideas, but in a uniquely American, distinctly North American context, and one in which these ideas were not uncommon and were not unknown. And in fact, Kabbalah being refashioned in Mormonism is hardly a new thing. We find Kabbalah emerging in non-Jewish contexts from the period of the Renaissance and even a little before with the development of Christian forms of Kabbalah. We find Renaissance humanism with Pico della Mirandola in the early modern philosophical and scientific community. There was a lot of curiosity about Kabbalah, including none other than Isaac Newton. And particularly, it seems that this is because Jews and Jewish secret claims were regarded as potentially powerful. So in the case of Mormonism, this is one version of something that's actually a broader cultural phenomenon. And it leads one to wonder, where will Kabbalah surface next and what new forms might it assume? Thank you very much. Okay, so that, that's like tons of details, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy to entertain any questions you might have, yes. Well, the specific way that this would be utilized in, in... So the question was, at the present time, are Mormons told about the influence of Judaism or potentially Kabbalah on, on Mormonism and the development of Mormonism? Um, how this is presented specifically in contemporary Mormon teachings or the system of what are called endowments, where people get special new levels of uh, instruction in the church, in some cases in the form of films that are shown in the, in the temple, I'm not entirely sure. And um, to some extent, it's because the endowments aren't always fully publicly accessible. So I'm curious to know the answer to that, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, there are a lot of descriptions about the value of the Hebrew Bible and the value of the Jews in the Mormon conception of um, resurrection and redemption. But how this would specifically present it, I'm, 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 I'm not certain. Yes. So do they consider themselves one of the lost tribes? They actually consider themselves to be the current true manifestation of the legacy of the people of Israel. And um, that the, lost, the 10 lost tribes were, at, were in fact the, the Native Americans. Um, of course, most forms of Christianity regard themselves to be the true continuation of the legacy of Israel, as do Jews. They regard themselves to be the true legacy of Israel. But that's part of why the biblical and ancient Jewish heritage is an object of you know, potential value for them. And this is, of course, one of the legacies of Jews in Western culture, that they are valued as a potential source of true knowledge. This is a blessing and a curse, right? There's all sorts of ways in which Jews occupy too much space in the imagination of others. But it has this interesting way of 
rendering Jewish ideas very visible throughout the culture in ways that we wouldn't necessarily expect that to happen, specifically because the claim to having some sort of access to Jewish secrets is a way for Christians to criticize one another, right? If you want to reestablish the true Christian church on earth, one way to criticize an established version of the church is to claim that they are an atrophied or somehow perverted, incorrect version of the true doctrine of Christ, which has been preserved in Jewish esoteric traditions. And so Judaism, and especially Kabbalah, sometimes becomes used as a mechanism, as a strategy for Christians to claim the true church in opposition to existing churches. Yes, sir. So the question is, am I aware of other religions that have been influenced by Kabbalistic thinking? We find this particularly in many facets of Christianity um, and in also some facets of contemporary and New Age religion. Um, whether we find Kabbalah in other religious traditions, it's an interesting question, but I'm not aware of any really um, decisive evidence in that respect. Yes? That's in the contemporary moment now. Uh, Mormonism has expanded globally. And again, there are, there are more Christians, more Muslims than Mormons, or at least more Catholics, let's say, more Muslims than Mormons. But Mormonism is growing relative to its existing size, is growing very, very quickly. Um, at first, there was only one church, the, the one, one temple that was left after Kirtland and Nauvoo. The, it was the temple in Salt Lake City. Um, the second place where they ended up establishing a temple was Mesa, Arizona, my hometown, or at least where I grew up after immigrating from Canada. And uh, that, that was one of the other major temples. A lot of the kids I went to school with came from the age of the, the era of the migration uh, from Illinois uh, to Utah. But then there started to be the development of temples in many different places. There's one in, in Irvine, or is it in Newport, right? There, there are many around the world. Also a very, very important one that was established in Hawaii. And Mormonism is, is a very prominent religion throughout the South Pacific. But there are Mormon temples uh, in, in many places. There's one in, in, in Manhattan, um, near Lincoln Center. I went on a, a tour of it before it was consecrated with a scholar of American religion. So it was really, really interesting. So Mormonism has grown rapidly, especially in the 20th century. Sorry? No, there's, there's substantially more Mormons than Jews in the world. Yes, in the back. They're building a Mormon... Is it a temple? So the question is, they're building a Mormon church in... There, there, there's a Mormon center in Jerusalem. There's a temple, there's a temple in LA and a, and a temple in Newport. There's, there's no limit really at this point to the number of places where one might find temples, which are really important for the uh, temple rituals, for certain endowments or teachings that are given, for weddings in particular, since this notion of, of marriage is so important and reproduction is so important within Mormonism, and the marriages have a very, very particular form of theurgic impact, of impact on the divine realm. Uh, temples are necessary, and as the Mormon community has expanded around the world, we find these temples in a lot of places. So this is a growing and, and very prominent phenomenon uh, throughout the world. Yes, sir. Uh, 
Well, he was criticized for plural marriage. So the, uh, there actually are more than 100,000 polygamous communities uh, in, in the United States um, or in North America, but they are the minority of Mormons in the world after 1898 when they discontinued the practice of plural marriage. But I think that the threat with Joseph Smith, I don't actually think they cared that much about plural marriage. I think they were more concerned about his bid for the presidency and in Illinois at the time, Mormons looked really powerful. I think that he was perceived as a threat since he was a significant, charismatic leader who had a lot of following. So it shows the level of power that he had in the United States at that moment, even though the conception of Christianity that he was advancing was really radically different from what was found in most mainline forms of Christianity and bears a lot of similarities in, in altered form to some aspects of Kabbalah. Uh, yes? Actually, I think it's the, so the question is why there is less focus in contemporary Mormonism or in, in historically in Mormonism on the crucified Christ. They don't use crosses as symbols. They have a, a sort of long steeple with a point um, indicating a sort of pointing up to the divine. Uh, the reason why we don't find an emphasis on, on crucifixion is because they don't regard the blood atonement, the atonement of Christ through his blood and dying for the sins of humanity, as what actually provides atonement and salvation for people. They regard it as necessary to engage in, in acts, in rituals, in the, the, the submission to law in order to attain salvation. And in that respect, it's not specifically a Kabbalistic, but I would say in some ways a kind of Jewish doctrine that you have to perform its vote, right? That seems to be the connection. It's also interesting that you currently are at a temple, Beth Shalom, that's in a church that says the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints out front, because growing up for several years, we had the same situation before we eventually bought that church from the Mormons who had grown too big for it, and it became Temple Beth Shalom again. Uh, so maybe it has something to do with Temple Beth Shalom and Mormonism, I'm not sure, but that's, that's an intriguing possibility. Uh, Norm. So the, the, so the primary holy document, the question is, are there any holy documents from the early Mormon church that are still available? The primary and most important holy document were the, the gold or brass plates of the Book of Mormon, um, 
that was that was dug through the from the hill in Kumora, and that is is not retained. That was only given for a brief time to Joseph Smith and some other members of the church were allowed to see it or at least to to lift it to heft it, um, but there were no others who saw it, and then it was given back to the angel Moroni. But Joseph Smith's papers, especially his discourses and sermons that were con that were collected in Doctrines and Covenants, as well as his uh, his 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 diary, essentially. These are all preserved by um, Brigham Young University, and the josephsmithpapers.com is an excellent website that actually has a, a transcription of all of the Joseph Smith papers, plus an image that you can expand to look at every, every dot uh, of Joseph Smith's handwriting. So these, these texts they make very publicly accessible, actually. Just that Joseph Smith was chosen to be the one to reveal this new dispensation, this new period in the development of the church, and that he was selected to be the prophet to reveal the true path to redemption on earth. Yes. I, I can't quite figure out the contemporary Mormon relationship to Jews. So the, this, this, this question what, about having a co-worker who had some literature about how to convert Jews. On the other hand, Jews need not convert in the, at least in the early Mormon scheme, in order for them to achieve salvation in the, in the end time. So, um, and of course, there's a much more complicated set of, of claims about the end time, what happens at the end time, and the period of wars and tribulations in Mormon theology. This is why they keep a, a large pantry with a year's worth of food. Um, it was one of the, the basic similarities between Mormon and Jewish households that I noticed as a kid. Both of them had lots and lots of food in them. Uh, but the, the value of Jewish converts is an interesting question. So in order to come to a peaceful arrangement with their campus in Jerusalem, Mormons agreed not to proselytize Jews in Israel. And it, it seems that they actually don't. Um, outside of Israel, of course, all, all converts are welcome. But as far as I can tell, there's less need to convert Jews than there is to, say, convert Catholics or other forms of Christianity that are problematic. Um, so Jews, as is common, occupy a very sort of unique particular configuration in the Mormon imagination as Jews typically do in Christian and Muslim imaginations. Uh, Jews occupy this place that no other people does and that that can be a blessing or not. <laughs> yes. So the question is about the Mormon practice of posthumous baptism of 
Holocaust victims. Mormons, of course, are very, very uh, skilled at genealogy and that many genealogy sites you go to are actually run by the, the, the Mormon church and they, they have excellent genealogical databases. Um, and the idea is that especially around the time of a marriage, one will posthumously baptize vicariously through someone in a baptismal font. They will posthumously baptize all of the departed souls of a particular lineage. Um, the idea, though, is that the souls in the afterlife have the option to accept or reject this baptism. However, the deliberate posthumous baptizing of Holocaust victims, which Mormons understood as an act of caring generosity, uh, many Holocaust survivors did not see that way. Uh, and, and I think for very good reason, and, and the church discontinued that practice and recognized that it was problematic. This though is one of the reasons why sometimes Mormon churches or Mormon youth groups will often uh, offer to go and help maintain cemeteries, including Jewish cemeteries. And the idea is that they're they collecting names of the departed to put into their database and, and search and, and, and then posthumously baptize. I remember once pointing this out to a rabbi in New York um, who was himself a Holocaust survivor. It was, it was um, Rabbi Weiss Halivni. And he said, well, what, what does it really matter? He, he didn't really care. I, I was a little more disturbed by it than he was, yes. So, that, so that's interesting. Yeah, and, and there's, there's no question that many people find this deeply disturbing. I personally don't want my ancestors posthumously converted to any religion. Uh, would also myself not like to have posthumous anything happening. Um, but the, the, the Mormon church, I think, heard that criticism and they, they discontinued that practice. Yeah. And that was a, that was a particular and deliberate uh, deliberate effort that then was was stopped. Uh, yes, in the back. Sure. Okay. Well, they they definitely note that the um, Hebrew Bible. The question was, are there connections deliberately drawn between early Jewish texts and the practice of, of plural marriage, of polygamy. And they, they note that the Hebrew Bible embraces polygyny, embraces plural marriage of men by, of, of women by men. Um, but they, they also connect it to the notion that it's necessary to have multiple spirit wives, especially so that women won't be 
won't be abandoned to the, the telestial kingdom and won't be kept out of the, the, the celestial kingdom. So the idea of taking on multiple wives, some of whom were not physical bonds, but just spiritual ones, the idea was that this was part of how they would have um, access to the divine realm through that marital bond. So it was, it was largely a theurgic argument about the need for it, and also so that this way they can, they can father more spirit children who will then also be able to be called into the afterlife. Eventually, in that afterlife, um, the, 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 the souls of men become gods and become uh, essentially the, the deity of their own planet on which other spirit children will be born. Uh, and that there's this sort of infinite profusion of gods and planets. So the practice of having multiple marriages was to move that along as effectively as possible. But are there biblical precedents for it? They, they regarded it, as, I mean, Joseph Smith certainly thought so and used that argument to advance that practice. Okay, thank you very much.